Card presents Back Issue Bloodpath with your hosts, Andrew Young and Petula Neal. It started with a wrong number, as some stories do. But this time, it was a comic creator contacting me to be a guest on my favorite comic. Welcome to Back Issue Bloodbath. I'm Andrew Young. I'm Petula Neal. And this week is the return of our sub-series, My Favorite Comic, which is something that uh, we do from time to time with either a comic creator or a comic fan, looking back at one of their favorite comic book stories that they can kick back, relax, and enjoy. And uh, this week we actually have a longtime friend of the Geek Card universe, an artist who, uh, I guess, man, I guess it was about a decade ago that, that I met him, uh, Michael Walsh. Welcome to the Hi show, guys. man. Hey. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks for coming on. So, yeah, so I'd say it was probably about a decade ago that uh, myself and Mr. Green of Geekard met you at a, it was either a Toronto Comic Con or a Fan Expo. Yeah, it was very early in my career, if I recall correctly. Probably a Fan Expo. I think you guys were doing interviews and maybe Comeback had just come out, my first image book. And I think you guys did an interview and we just hit it off really well. And we've been chatting ever since. Yeah, yeah, we have. We have chatted ever since. It's actually anytime I'm at a convention in Toronto, I always make sure to stop by Michael's table in Artist Alley. And uh, he's been a guest multiple times on uh, Geek Hard. And uh, oddly enough, has had a lot of really strange video interviews with Mr. Green. Not Michael's fault. Just it all depends on what side of the bed Green gets up on. That's really what it comes down to. But he loves I bring out the best much. in people. What can I say? Yeah, yeah. No, Green, Green does love Michael very much, yes. Uh, that's probably the problem with the interviews, is that he loves them a little too much, and it shows. So there you go. They're always some of my favorites. There you go. There you go. Well, we'll have to get another one in. It's been a while, definitely. But uh, today we're talking about one of your favorite comics. And uh, when I approached you about this, your main goal was you wanted to bring something that wouldn't seem cliche and would be something cool that you think people should check out, right? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because for me, I do still read quite a few comics and I think my favorite comic changes day to day. Honestly, it depends on when you ask me. So um, when I had to pick some options for this show, I went through a few that were very influential to me at different points of my career. And uh, City of Glass by Paul Karasik and David Mazzucchelli was something that I found. Oh, geez. I was a bit, I would have been in university because I remember I bought it uh, when I was traveling abroad. So, it was very influential to me as I was building my storytelling style early in my career. And so it's it's held a special place in my heart ever since then. And it's one that I keep by my desk, as with a few of uh, David Mazzucchelli's great works, just to, to look at and to feel inspired by because he has such a dynamic and interesting way of, of telling stories. But I haven't actually sat down and reread it in, in quite a long time, at least, you know, seven or eight years. So... Uh, it was very, very interesting for me to actually reread it in the last couple of weeks. And uh, it hits in a very different way now that I'm a, a father and I'm and I'm looking at the story as a 
dissection and a song about the relationship between loss and fatherhood and and what that can do to a person so i it was a completely new read for me almost it's like i was reading it again for the first time so i really enjoyed it and i'm glad that of the options that i sent you this is what you guys picked right right yeah now uh before we get into the piece let's talk about Mazzucchelli for a second here because of course as you mentioned he is a yeah like he's one of the big artists of the modern era of course you know like the stuff that he did in the 1980s still influence a number of artists like yourself to this day. When did you first see Mazzucchelli's art? Like, what was the piece? Well, I'm sure I would have seen his Daredevil issues as a younger reader, but I didn't start really following artists until I was a little bit older. And for me, the first piece that really absolutely destroyed me in terms of the way that I thought about superhero artwork was Batman Year One. And I still think that is a piece that holds up today and you can see its influence on other artists across the board of superhero comics. And it is so far ahead of its time. And it really is, I think, the pinnacle of what can be done with realism in superhero storytelling. But Kelly obviously thought that it was his magnum opus in the world of superheroes as well, because he hasn't done anything superhero related since then. And after year one, he moved on to doing his uh, Rubber Blankets book and then City of Glass and then Austerious Pollock. But he really hasn't done too much comics work, you know, in the last 30 years, honestly. he's uh, he, he does a few things here and there, and they're always absolutely groundbreaking and astonishing when he does. Mostly he's been teaching, it's my understanding. Yeah, I think that's part of the uh, the allure of Mazzucchelli is that he did such great work, but again, he didn't do a lot of it in the comics realm. And so when he does do it, it means something. Whereas like there's other great artists that did dynamic stuff in the comics world, say in the 70s and 80s, and then just kept going to the point where they almost kind of ran themselves dry. Yeah. No longer finding innovation, now becoming like a parody of themselves. So yeah, so I guess Mazzucchelli was smart in the sense that having these this time away from comics every time made it so that every time he came back, he felt rejuvenated and could look at it with a fresh eye, which... Yeah, you have to respect someone who doesn't want to just bang out books and, and make a living at it. He wants to do something artful every time he tells a story, which is really respectable, in my opinion. Totally. Now, uh, Petula, was this the first time that you got to check out City of Glass? Yes, definitely. And... I had to restart it. I was in a bit of a darker place when we first got the reading assignment. And it was a good reminder of why I was uh, waiting to get a new therapist. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, let, let me just have that consultation appointment first and then restart this. Uh, oddly enough, that didn't work out. And I still had to kind of white knuckle through the rest of it. But uh, I think it's something that you can read it many different ways, but definitely reading this for the first time after the Panannigan, it hits the the isolation themes and yes. sort of what happens to you on your own, what happens in your head, what happens to how you interact with other people when you pull yourself out of day-to-day -day interaction, that hit really hard. Yeah. Yeah, the sense of reality just goes away and you kind of live in your own world and it captures that so well i thought what's kind of interesting is like people have looked at this book and 
automatically when you start to read it, there is kind of the framework of a noir story. But yeah. It goes astray because if you think of like, of course, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, you know, they kind of are kind of the pinnacle of the style of a noir that many people have kind of copied that as the blueprint. Whereas in their world, the detective of a story is trying to bring about justice in an unjust world, but still believes that justice should be the norm. Whereas this book kind of is more of like crime exists and we all commit crime and there's no way of avoiding it. Our very thoughts are crimes. So it takes you down a much more nihilistic path in some respects, which to me is when you get darker than noir, that's, uh, that's quite a feat in my opinion. Yeah, I find it interesting because it is like, I think that a lot of noir movies have a formulaic structure and a lot of them are tragic stories, but they'll follow the general idea of a three act structure with the hero's arc, a hero's journey. And this flips that almost on its head. And it's a reverse hero's journey where it starts off with a problem and then the hero must face that problem. They fail and then persevere and then save the day where in this, it's like the hero comes across a problem and then <laughs> as it goes, they solve the problem almost immediately. And then instead of learning and growing, everything just falls apart for them because, you know, the problem didn't actually fix them solving the problem, right? It just exacerbated their own issues that they were going through. And instead of doing any kind of inner work on themselves, they just became obsessed with the problem. And even though it was solved, they just had to find a reason to keep working on it. And that work, work-life balance essentially was not right. And it, and it broke them in half when they were already on the verge of breaking, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of subtext here, reading it now, there's so many different things that you could talk about, like work-life balance, how work is all absorbing. It doesn't even say how he lost his family. And, it, and you know, there's this idea of him um, thinking of Stillman the Younger as his surrogate son. And that's why he's trying so hard to protect him at all costs, because he's taken the place of his own son that he lost. And there's just so much to tap into. It's actually quite a dense piece of work, even though it's a quick read. It's also kind of interesting that you brought up the, the fact that, uh, you know, the work-life balance and everything in the story, of course, uh, Quinn, the main character, he's a writer. The private detective who he's uh, mistaken for is named Paul Oster, who is also the name of the writer. Of so the when, original novel. Of, yeah. of the original novelist, right. So then he goes searching for the real Paul Oster. He finds the novelist, not the detective. And of course, the person that he's tracking down, Stillman Sr., is also in his mind something of a writer as well. So we're kind of locked in this world of like writers trying to finish a story. Yeah, everyone's trying to finish a story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, the, in most cases in this story, the story is what ruins them. Totally, as you mentioned earlier. It's not like yeah. unreliable narrator. It's more unreliable everything. Because like, yeah, the yeah. world's unreliable, yeah. Yeah, I, as, at a certain point, I'm like, is this conversation really happening? Or is a version of it happening? Is it happening the way they think it is? Mm -hmm. Some of the things they do in sort of the, the kind of triptych 
patterns in the panels where you're going deeper, 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 and then pulling out and out and out. It's yeah. Therapy. Yeah. And, and that's what you're speaking about there with, with the, with the paneling moving in and out and getting more abstract as the narration becomes denser is one of the things that originally attracted me to this book because I actually am somebody who doesn't love narration in comics. And I think more often than not, it's done poorly in that the art reflects exactly what's happening in the narration, which I find unnecessary and convoluted. And if the story can be told in just pictures, that's the best way to do it. And I think the solution here when adapting a novel, and I have some experience with the adaptation because I did the Last Jedi adaptation for Marvel, and I know how difficult it is to adapt something from another medium, but adapting a novel would be very, very difficult because you'd have to try and figure out how to distill huge, huge blocks of text into into very small amounts of what you can put onto a page. And the way that they've done that here and, and integrated abstract imagery that changes and, and the camera moves into and out of as the image changes. And it usually doesn't have anything to do in terms of like the objective reality of what's being said in the words, but there's something artful and subjective about the way that it's done. And there's a shifting of art styles in it. And that's the kind of stuff that I really latched onto when I first read it, because I just thought that the storytelling itself was so, so interesting. And like the acting and the characters and the way that they manipulate the nine panel grid is also really interesting because I'm a big proponent of um, the nine panel grid as a starting point, but not using only nine panel grids throughout the entire book. And, and what they do here is, again, they use the nine panel grid as a starting point, but in many of the pages, six or seven panels, but they're always using that grid as the basis for each page. So I, I found it, I find it a really interesting structure to the book. And like the acting on that first first page where, where Stillman, the younger, walks into the room and you can just tell that he's so wobbly on his feet by the way mm that he's depicted on the page and the way he sits down, he like slumps in the chair and you see his hair rise, but there's such an economy of line in that character work as well, that it's just absolutely masterful. And like, I think it's deceptive in its simplicity, the art in that the only person that could express that kind of movement and that clumsy neurotic behavior is someone like Mazzucchelli is who is like a master of line. And so much of his work is very line heavy and line dense, but He's worked so much over his career at stripping down to the essentials that it's just beautiful in terms of the art. Like I said, on this reading of it, I really tapped into the story and everything that was going on there. Yeah, and uh, of course, the, the the book originally came out in 1994. It was reissued in 2004. And uh, when it was reissued in 2004, Art Spiegelman wrote the foreword for it. And the main thing that he pointed out in that really caught his eye of the visuals was when... Peter Stillman is explaining the horrors of his father and how it shows all the various different things, the sewer grates and all the different things that the words that Peter was speaking was coming out of. Spiegelman holds that up as like one of the most impressive pieces of modern art he considered. And yeah, like that's what you guys have been talking about the abstract about that. But when you look at it there, it gives that feeling off of like, how a city can talk, how a city can carry stories and one man's story can envelop a city. It kind of had that entire feel to it. And it's at that point where I feel the book really starts cooking where yeah. that's, that's when you go, okay, I'm in. Cause the, the maze grid that turns into a fingerprint was yeah. like, oh, I was God, like okay, yeah. I'm in. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. just before that, because until you get to there, it's just a wrong number that the guy's really curious about. That's kind of, it isn't until we get there that we suddenly now are invested in Peter, in Quinn, in the horrors of Peter's father. All of that kind of comes to life within those moments. Yeah, I think that um, there's a few moments in this book that really shine for me, like you said, like the the thumbprint turning into a maze. I find, found this idea of God's language really interesting as someone I grew up going to Catholic school and going to church a lot with my grandparents. So I was very deep into the mythology of, of the Roman Catholic religion, and I saw a lot of people who we're very, very invested in it. And I see how that can twist someone up too, especially someone who's absolutely brilliant on the edge of that brilliance is, is insanity almost, right? And this person that got so invested in finding that first language that he would go, again, it's his work and, and it's about his work-life balance. He would take any cost to find it, even the cost of losing his family, which uh, again is reflected back in in Quinn's own life where he lost his family and now he's absolutely completely invested in work. That's why it's really interesting when he meets the real Paul Oster and he has his kid and his wife there. It's uh, Quinn almost feels like he's rubbing it in his face unintentionally. Like he just has to get out of there because to him, he has the perfect life. But if you look at Paul Oster and the way he's drawn, he has these huge bags under his eyes and he looks <laughs> absolutely worn, worn out, worn to the bone, right? Like I'm sure his life's not easy either, but it's like the grass is always greener on the other side. Although his bone structure, like his face is drawn like more kind of of all the characters, maybe closest to like cartoon comic handsome. But yeah, he looks like totally busted. Yeah, he's got the, he's got, I'm looking <laughs> yeah. at the page now, he's got stubble, he's got huge yeah. bags under his eyes. He's, his hair is unkempt and his shirt is, he's drinking a beer. <laughs> it's like a lot of this book hits a little bit more close to home now. It's very interesting. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, Todd, you talked before about how, when Quinn is trying to solve this case, he is kind of seeing Peter Stillman as his surrogate son. What I also find kind of interesting is that in there, there was kind of like a lustful intent for Stillman's wife from Quinn, that he almost saw her as a potential, you know, like suddenly she, as he's reforming the family unit in his head as him, uh, Peter as a son, but Peter's wife as his wife. Yeah, so, yeah. Which was kind of like, it was weird, which again, that does kind of harken back to noir. Noir kind of always does play with the idea of different relations and how they can change on a dime. But this kind of him kind of creating this kind of weird makeshift family in the story, which ultimately, you know, even if he does succeed in his case, will fall apart in the real yeah. world. It's all in his mind. And it was just, it, to me, it was, that was kind of like an interesting kind of like take on that, that it was just sort of like, oh, okay. And yeah, then, I think to me, he was idealizing what was happening to him as uh, one of these typical formulaic noir stories. And in those stories, there's always the femme fatale who yeah. the detective sleeps with, right? Or has a romance with. And in his mind, this was just going to play out exactly like every of one of his noir novels that he's written under a pseudonym. So I think just in meeting her, he immediately pictures this idea of what should happen if this story was one of those formulaic noir stories. So he builds up this expectation. And then I think the intent is to make the reader have the same expectation so that 
when the story actually plays out and literally nothing happens like a typical formulaic noir story, it is more effective, right? Mm. It plays with your expectations as a reader. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, because, you know, we talked earlier about the, the, the point of it kind of really coming back to the writing in this, is how they adapted Quinn finding someone on the street reading one of his books. And he mm -hmm. has to ask them what they think of it. And the explanation from the person reading the book is basically explaining what's happened so far in the story. Mm -hmm. And this kind of like, it annoys Quinn that he's like, well, you're not telling me if you like it. If you don't like it, you're just saying it's okay. Why are you still reading that? It was almost like they were kind of taking a moment. And it might have been like that in the original novel of Austria that they're saying, if you don't get this, you, you can stop reading. But if you're, you know, if you're on for the rest of the ride, you, you better enjoy it sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I found it interesting that that woman that he met in the subway station was the same woman that took his apartment later, or at least drawn very similar. Mm. And he saw some similarities there. So it makes me also wonder, like, how many things, like you said, happened in this story that are unreliable, because we're seeing the story mostly from his perspective, right? So I don't know. I, I, it probably wasn't the same woman in his apartment, but he's finding reasons to connect dots to keep following this case, to keep staying in the rabbit hole so he doesn't have to go home and face his life, right? Yeah, I think with his attraction to the wife, to go back to that, part of it might be just this is a woman who's good with weird so <laughs> that's, that's true you can handle yeah. this shit yeah. so you can handle my yeah. shit yeah, yeah. <laughs> like your type is somebody who's spent years alone in the dark well i and love an alleyway also, yeah and she's <laughs> yeah. also taking care of him yeah and he might be looking for someone that has that kind of maternal instinct uh, whether consciously or subconsciously someone that would take care of him in his state that he's in at home yeah of all of the many questions because after meeting young stillman i would have all the questions <laughs> right he, he asks her like how did you guys hook up like that yes. was one of the most <laughs> salient points he needed to suss out as it's he's very imagining macho. her like imagines her naked and then wants to know how did you end up being like caretaker wife because i might need one of those soon right because yeah, i can I feel one of those definitely yeah i could feel like the mental threads unraveling well, as, He's a bit as of a they do scarf. unravel mere pages later yeah yeah i feel like um in that scene in his first interview with them he's also playing a character right he even sees himself as that character from his book so he's trying to act like one of his characters and trying to act like uh what what is the character's name again max something right Max work. Max work. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to he's trying to act like his character Max work, right? So I feel like he's asking questions that Max work would ask, but not necessarily him as the writer Quinn would ask or even him as his pseudonym. William also a funny something name. like Williams Double William? Yeah, I'm looking for it here. I've got the book. Yeah, William Wilson. William Wilson, there you go. All the names in this are so great. There's a lot going on with names because the name of the actual author is in here. There's two Stillmans, and then he starts going by Stillman. There's the name of the Henry Dart character that's also a pseudonym that Stillman the Older uses in his novel talking about God's language. You know, there's a lot of wordplay and, and rhythms that are going on, which are really interesting. Later on in the book, we find that the it's because it's kind of not 
really evident at the beginning, but it kind of becomes very clear uh, as Quinn starts to unravel that the narration of the story is piecing the story together almost like like an archaeological dig based on notebooks Quinn has left behind in the old apartment of Peter Stillman's. And it's really, it's at the point when, when Quinn decides to uh, camp out and just watch Stillman Sr.'s door that uh, we kind of get the kind of falling away of the story where it's like, okay, well, he didn't say anything for like a bunch of pages except a couple of, you know, random scribbles and stuff. So I can only piece together he went here and did this. And then the end of the story is basically him going, and we don't know what happened to him because he stopped writing. And Yeah, it, it's interesting because the way that those few pages there are paced, it makes it feel like he's about to die of starvation. And uh, but then when they go to go to Stillman's apartment, he's not there anymore. Right. So, you don't you never really find out what happened there, which I find a really interesting way to end it. But going back to like you said, there's multiple different narrators. You can actually pick out with the lettering who's narrating the different sections. There's a typewriter font, which is whoever is the friend of Oster, who Oster had hired to find Quinn. There's a fully capitalized, more comic book looking font, which is Quinn's narration. And then there's a non-capitalized comics looking font that's Quinn's notes in his book. Yeah. So there's two separate Quinn narrations and then there's one from the person who found his notes. So it's really, um, really intuitive and and, uh, thoughtful lettering work throughout the book, which I think Mazzucchelli might've done himself. I know he lettered his next book Austerious Polyp himself, and he did a different typeface for each character in it to try and express the way that the the cadence of their voice sounded, which was also really interesting. And I think you could definitely do an episode of this podcast on Austerious Polyp as well. But I thought that this would be a brisker read for you guys and for your audience. Austerious Polyp is pretty pretty big. Yeah, it's very dense. Yeah. Overall, this is this is one of those books that. You have to be a fan of just going on a journey and realizing like life, sometimes you're not going to get all the answers. It's more about the experience of it and what you can relate to the experience and what you can discover from the experience. If you're somebody that likes your stories to have a nice three act structure and at the end, you know, like there was a, there, there used to be this uh, Kids in the Hall sketch with Bruno Punce Jones and Francesca Fiore where they were talking about how they hated the end of American movies because it was always, always the puppy licking the face, always the guy winning, the hitting the ball and winning the big game. It's like if you're one of those people, you might not like it because this is a much more introspective story. This is one that you read the characters and through their experiences is what the book is trying to say. It's not really a, an open and shut narrative. Yeah, that's a good point. This is definitely more on the art house side of, of comic book reading. And uh, it's not necessarily going to have the same audiences like Superman or Batman or something like that. Even the other works that Mazzucchelli has done in comic book land are a lot different than this. I think some people might even find it a little bit impenetrable and hard to connect with, but in terms of craft, it's just a masterwork. I mean, if anybody in your audience is a creator of comics, I think it's worth reading and analyzing all of the decision-making. It's incredibly thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And even if you read the foreword, I know we've talked a lot about Mazzucchelli, but Paul Karasik had a lot to do with the 
with the way that the story was told. And I, in the introduction, it says that Mazzucchelli was having trouble distilling the book into comic book form. And he told Spiegelman that like, I don't know if this can be done. And Spiegelman brought Karasik in to help with laying out the book and to, and finding an inroad into the story in this format. So I think Karasik had a lot to do with the, with the structure of it, which is great because I do think comics is a collaboration and like a big part of making comics is bringing out the best of the people that you're collaborating with. And to hear that Mazzucchelli thought that it couldn't be done until Karasik got involved is really interesting and says a lot about Karasik and the way that his mind works and the stories that he wants to tell. Yeah, yeah, no, he did a he did a good job of creating the blueprint for Mazzucchelli to follow to uh, commit this to the page. So, Petula, what were your thoughts, uh, like overall thoughts on the book? Definitely not a book I would have recommended to anyone in, I'm going to (laughs) say, late 2020 when we were all starting to get a little weird, but (laughs) definitely one I would recommend now because I think while I agree that it is a bit tough to get into, I think a lot more people could relate to some of the isolation and like what's going on in your head may be very different from what's going on in someone else's head. I think there's a lot more that your general person could kind of log into on this one now Mm -hmm. than even sort of three and a half years ago. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting. Yeah. I I never really thought about how the pandemic would offer a completely new perspective on the, the isolation aspects of this, but it totally does. You're right. And a lot of the background characters in the streets of New York, you see a lot of people who are, if not unhoused, definitely looking more like our lead at the end of the story. And again, as we see a rise of a lack of availability of affordable housing due to, you know, everything from Airbnb to just, you know, regular old capitalism, we have that happening more now. It's more visible now. People are noticing it more now. It's not like it wasn't always there. But this book also brings to mind, it's like, not everyone you see in a tent has some sort of substance abuse problem or whatever. Like sometimes people are just going through something. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it that way, this is essentially the story of a man with mental illness becoming unhomed. Really? When you look at the bigger yeah. picture, right? It's, uh, it's interesting because, yeah. I mean, I'm in Hamilton and it's everywhere. People aren't able to afford housing or they can't find a place to stay or like we said, mental illness or they're choosing to live unhomed. So it's something that is very prevalent right now. And I think a lot of the major urban structures in the country and, and, you know, in North America in general. So that does add another topical aspect. There's actually quite a few topical aspects. Yeah. And it, well, also it's, it's funny how like some of these topical aspects are also kind of timeless in the sense, because when Paul Oster wrote the original novel, it came out in 1987, New York was going through one of its biggest homeless crisis situations at that time as well. So it is something that people, I feel like a lot of times can relate to just because it is unfortunately some of these basic crises kind of never go away. They just become more visible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I wondered how that part of the story would age because we're in a very different time and the way that we talk about unhomed people is very different than it was in the 80s and the 90s. But I didn't think it was too bad. But again, I'm not an authority on the subject. So 
I would take that with a grain of salt. If people are in those communities or if they're trying to help those communities, I think that that's something to remember that this was written a long time ago as well. But as you said, uh, when it comes to uh, Mazzucchelli's artwork, this is a clinic on visual storytelling and Paul Karasik uh, had a great hand in that and was a great adapter and collaborator with uh, Mazzucchelli. If you are an artist or an art fan, this is definitely a, a book to study because uh, mm-hmm. it does some amazing stuff in it. And I want to thank thank you, Michael, for bringing this book to us because, again, like Batula, I had never read this before. I, of course, was familiar with Mazzucchelli's work, but this was one that uh, I wasn't familiar with and, uh, yeah, was really blown away by it. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed taking a, a critical look at it again after a long time, even though, like I said, I literally keep it beside my desk and I flip through it because there's so many little, I wouldn't say tricks, but techniques that he uses here that I find very, very inspiring and help me to think outside of the box when I'm stuck on a page and I don't want to just do the same thing over and over again and, and you know do the same 45 degree angle of the character. And I want to get a little bit more depth and nuance to the storytelling. I think there's a lot of, of gold to mine here. We've come to the end of another episode of Back Issue Bloodbath. Michael, tell the good folks out there who are interested in checking out your stuff where they can find you. Um, you can find me on Twitter or on Instagram. My username is Mr. spelled out M-I-S-T-E-R underscore Walsh, W-A-L-S-H. And I've also got a website that you can find a shop on it for any of the merch that I'm selling or any original artwork. And that's michaelwalshcomics.com. I've got a webcomic that you can read for free. That's a horror webcomic that journals out some of my own night terrors and nightmares. And that's thesleepstories.com. And then uh, in terms of what's on the shelves right now, I've got a book from Image called The Silver Coin. It's a horror anthology. And then Outside of that, I'm doing a lot of covers, a lot of Magic the Gathering cards, and uh, I've got some exciting new projects coming up over the next few years. I believe uh, the Ninja Turtles TMNT annual called Out of Time that I wrote but did not draw is in is in previews right now, so that's orderable, and it's a really fun adventure story that's going to introduce a really cool new character into the Ninja Turtles mythology. So awesome. I recommend ordering that if you get a chance, yeah. That's great. And of course, yeah, I can attest The Silver Coin, one of my favorite books of the past few years. Our villain of the year, The Coin. Yeah, the Coin. The Coin is a, an amazing villain. Surprisingly for a coin, has a lot of depth. Has a lot of depth for an inanimate object. It gets um, busy. Yeah, it does, definitely. <laughs> and of course, Michael works with some some amazing writers in that and, of course, also writes some of the stories himself. And uh, that that's an amazing book. And the sleep stories, go and check that out online because uh, Michael's seen some shit when he wakes up at night. He has. <laughs> you can see that shit too. It's crazy. Of course, as you know, Michael, always been a big fan. When it comes to your mainstream work, I'll always think about Maria Hill walking down that spiral of lies in Secret Avengers. See, that's something that would have been done in this book, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. the kind of storytelling that I find really interesting. And I, I'm sure I probably pulled that some of those ideas from stuff that I've seen in here. But yeah, I tried to bring when I was doing a lot more superhero stuff, I, I tried to bring some unconventional paneling and, and um, ideas to those to those worlds as well. Well, also, when you're taking an Alish Cott uh, script, 
It's already yeah. kind of crazy yeah. at first. You're like, you can go a lot of places. You were able to work the Ultimate Warrior into the comic, and it made sense. Yeah. So there you go. Right there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> true. That was a, quite an absurd comic book. <clears throat> yeah, no, definitely. Uh, a lot of fun work. Uh, but again, thanks so much, Michael, for doing this with us. Of course, you can find everything we do at geekartshow.com. Petula, where can people find you? At inatsafe.com on Twitter, Hive, Spoutable, Instagram, TikTok, at obesakantawit, O-B-E-S-A-C-A-N-T-A-V-I-T, and here with you on Back Issue Bloodbath. And of course, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Geekard. Follow this very show on Facebook at Back Issue Bloodbath, where we post a new episode every week. But the easiest way to make sure you don't miss an episode is to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice. And while you're there, leave a five-star rating and review. And after that, if your phone happens to be ringing, maybe pick it up. There could be somebody there that needs help. Or it could be just another robocaller. Or it could be somebody asking if you want your ducks to clean in your house. This has been Back to Your Bloodbath. I've been Andrew Young. I've been Petronio. Have yourself a good one.